0: As I've said often, the chapters and verses were not broken up when Matthew wrote this book, and therefore sometimes it's just best to almost ignore that, and uh, we're kind of going to do that today. Matthew seventeen twenty-two. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? Our, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a little child to them and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one, uh, uh, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we ask that you would please be with us. We look at this passage and we see just the confusion and, and arrogance of the disciples, and we realize that we are so much like them in many ways that we need to hear from you. We need to be um, adjusted, as it were, in our attitudes by you. We need to be instructed by you. We need to to know what to value and how to see things properly, and you came to teach us all of that. You taught it, it was recorded in scripture, and now it is for us to read and to hear and to understand. So give us grace, give us help to do this. Bless and be with us in this, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Before I even start preaching today, I'd like to just pause and welcome and recognize some very, very important people today, some very special people today, people that you and I should know and should model our lives after. And that are, who, who am I talking about? I'm talking about the children who are here today. I'm talking about the children. Children, we're so thankful that you're here today because you are actually what Jesus' story is about. In fact, Jesus, if he were here and this this situa- this scene was being played out again, he would have called one of you forward. He would have said, come here, come here, come here. And, and he would have you come here and he would have you stand right here and you would stand here and then he would use you as an illustration of what the rest of us should be like. So kids, welcome and tune in because this, is, this has a lot for you as well. But let me get, begin by asking you a question that I'm sure you've probably wrestled with it, in, it uh, recently in your life. Have you ever wondered how things have morally gone downhill so fast in this country? Have you ever wondered that what in the world? How has this happened so quickly? How have has it, uh, how are we now at, at a state in our in our in our country where marriages are breaking up like crazy and Lots of people are deciding they're not even going to get married in the first place. People are living together. Children are considered a nuisance, and if they get in the way of our of our career or our happiness or our path, we'll chop them up in the womb and then pull out the pieces. Or if we don't do that, we'll just uh, they're just born. Children are just popped into this out of wedlock, and they're just and they're here and they're not cared for. Why, how did the culture buy into this so quickly? This whole meism thing. It's all about me. My, if my marriage is boring, have an affair. If I'm single, just have a series of one-night stands. That's fine. Get a hookup ad and hook up with people, strangers, and have the most intimate human interaction that can possibly be. Have it with complete strangers because of the hookup app. Let's have open relationships where we can just, we can, we can marry two or three people. Let's have sex with whomever we want to have sex with, male, female, same-sex, opposite tracks. Let, let, let's do that. Let's do that. How, how did we ever buy into that so quickly? Let, let's, let's have pornography for commercials. Let's, 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 let's live sensual lives. Let's, let's care about just money and pleasure and, and, and fun and, and make all of life that. How did we buy into that so quickly as an entire culture? Let's believe that money is going to make us happy. Money and success is going to bring happiness. And more than anything, let's get God out of here. Get him out of here. We don't want to listen to him. He makes us feel guilty. He makes us feel bad. Get him out of the schools. Get him out of the social discussion. Get him out of governments. Get him out of the classroom. Get him out of the counseling room. Get him out of here. We want to be free from him. How did the culture buy into that so quickly? quickly and the answer is biblically it's because of the flesh what's the flesh i'm not talking about there's a skin and bones thing primarily i'm talking about when the bible used the word flesh it means our fallen sinful nature that we inherited from adam that is in rebellion against God, has not, doesn't want anything to do with God, wants to live its own life, decide and go its own way. It has launching. That's the flesh. And the Bible calls that flesh, it is a powerful nature that is under the power and direction of sin. And what we've done is we've unleashed the flesh. We've unleashed the flesh. Now, sadly, left wing. News commentators, right-wing news commentators, people don't really get that. They don't understand that. Even Christians don't talk enough about it. So then we ask the question, well, how can we turn this around? Well, how we can turn this around, it's presented to us by some people. Some people say, I don't want to turn it around. This is what we want, man. This is it. This is it. Let's go for it. On the other side, they say, no, 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 we need to turn this around. We need to reinstitute traditional values and conservatism. And dear friends, that will never work. That will not be powerful enough. That is too weak. That is not God's answer. Here's God. Now, I'm I'm in favor of traditional values. I'm in favor of those things, but that's not God's answer. That is not enough. We're just going to impose traditional values because this flesh is evil. This flesh is wicked. This flesh doesn't want that. This flesh, you can't, it's very hard to get this flesh back in the cage. The Bible's answer, God's answer is this, the kingdom of God, an alternative kingdom, something radically different something that transforms people from the inside out and trance and then begins to transform their thinking and their communication and their value systems and what they desire and what they want to begin to transform. That's what the Bible says needs to happen. And it, and this is what Jesus came to do. He came to institute the kingdom of God. And by the way, the kingdom of God, in this passage that we have before, us, so if you have your Bibles open here, the kingdom of God is one of the main themes of this passage. Even chapter twenty verse chapter seventeen, verse twenty five, that speaks about catching fish with coins in their mouth um, has to do with kingdom. It's, it's veiled in that one where he talks about the kingdom, the kings of this earth and their sons, the sons of the king. We're going to get to that. But certainly look at chapter 18 and verse one, where it talks about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And look at verse three, "No, by no means enter the kingdom of God." Verse four, greatest in the kingdom of God. And so this idea of the kingdom of God is very prevalent and very evident, and it's one of the themes that we're going to look at today. But there's another theme I want us to look at before we, before we move forward, and that is it, it's a word that actually is used quite a bit in this text, but it, it's, it's translated differently, so, so you're going to miss it. Okay? And it's the Greek word, and I've, I've referred to this before, it's the Greek word called scandalizo. Scandalizo is a verb, and to scandalize, of course, we get our word scandalized from that. But the word actually means to trip somebody up, to cause somebody to stumble, to cause somebody to be tempted, to cause somebody in order that they might fall. To get people to fall, that's what it means. And it's sometimes translated offense. In the New King James, it's translated offense a lot, which I, I think is, a, is not the greatest translation because we think of offense now as something different than that, especially in our generation where people are so fragile that you can just tell them the truth about something and they think you're offending them. And that and, and that's not what this word means. The word here means to trip somebody up and to, or to cause them to, to fall into sin. And it's used quite a bit. In fact, I'm going to point it out to you here uh, because your Bibles may have different translations. But it starts in in 1727. Uh, Lest we offend. That's the word skandaliza right there. And then look at chapter 18. uh, I'm sorry, chapter 18. Yeah, chapter 18, verse 6. Those little ones who believe in me to sin. That's the word skandaliza. the same one. To trip them up to fall. In in verse 7, it's used three times. Woe to the world because of offenses. There's the word, because of those things that trip people up into sin. For offenses must come, and for whom offenses come. It's used three times there. In verse 8, it's translated in the New King James, sin. If your hand causes you to sin, it's the same word, to trip up to sin, and the same thing in verse 9. And so this idea of tripping and temptation and such. So let me paint this picture for you. The Bible teaches in in, in many ways that there's two kingdoms at work in this world. There's the kingdom that has fallen into sin, the kingdom that has fallen into sin. And and sometimes that's described, it's very graphically described in the book of Revelation as Babylon, Babylon. Babylon was a great king, uh, a great kingdom in in the Old Testament that, that came and destroyed Israel. Nebuchadnezzar was king, Babylon. It's called Babylon in the book of Revelation. It's called uh, 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 the the world in the scriptures. It's called the the, the present evil age and and such. That's what's being referred to. And the Bible then talks about this radical kingdom, this other kingdom, which is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God goes against flesh, goes against the sin, goes against this. And this is what Jesus has called us to. Jesus has called us to get into this kingdom, stay in this kingdom, and, 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 uh, and, and get to heaven, as it were. So we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the kingdom. We're going to look at this and, and try to apply this to ourselves as we go through this text. And the text begins with, in, in one sense, this text we're looking at today, begins with the kingdom being established by its founder. Look at verse 22. Now, while they were still staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And at that point, you might think, wow, this is an amazing story. Well, you're going to die, you're going to be killed, that's crazy, but don't worry, you're going to be raised up. That wasn't their response at all. Look at their response. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And I think part of the reason they were exceedingly sorrowful is they didn't understand what raised up on the third day even means, because we know the confusion when it actually happens. They just simply didn't get it. In Mark chapter 9, verse 32, Mark gives us a little bit of insight when he says this, but they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. So they just got upset about it and such. But notice here that the kingdom of God is being built on the crucifixion and sacrifice and resurrection of the very Son of God. This is the absolute foundation. We're going to return to this, but just keep that in mind. And then in verses 24 through 27, we have a passage where uh, the king is a, kingdom is identified in one sense. Now, of course, this passage has to do with paying the temple tax, and I'm not going to go into great detail on this passage, because when we get to them asking Jesus about taxation in a couple chapters, then I'm going to deal with the whole doctrine of that and such. But I do want you to notice something. So if they ask Peter, do you not pay the temple tax? That's a tax that, that yearly was, was uh, collected for the upkeep and maintenance of the temple, of God's temple in Jerusalem. This wasn't a Roman tax. This was to upkeep the temple. This was the Jews taxing, them, taxing themselves for the upkeep of the temple. But I want you to notice what, Peter, what Jesus says to Peter, his reasoning. And he says this, look at verse 25. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers. Now, when a king taxes somebody, does he tax his own kids? No, they're his sons. They're princes. They don't get taxed. You go out and tax strangers, okay? So Peter says, well, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. What's he getting at? What's he saying here? Nevertheless, we don't have to pay the tax, he's saying. We're sons of God. Nevertheless, let's not offend them. Let's not make this tax an issue. Let's pay it. Let's keep paying this tax so that we can tell them the truth, that you stay focused on the big thing. So what, what is Jesus saying? Well, you know, remember earlier on, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is proclaiming here. Listen to what one commentator says. Was not Jesus the son of God by nature? Was not the temple his father's house? Was he not, in fact, greater than the temple, as he said in Matthew 12? And as to Peter, was he not a son by adoption? In other words, Jesus is saying, we are sons of God. We are sons. You're a son by adoption. I am the eternal son of God. I don't, I don't have to pay this tax, but I'm going to pay this tax. I'm going to pay this tax so that we don't cause any scandal or offense so that we can stay focused on the gospel. Next, in chapter 18, something truly horrible happens. Something truly awful happens. In fact, what happens next in 18.1 is that the flesh, man's sinful nature, rears up. It's, It's the value system of Babylon breaks through. The old kingdom, that old kingdom, the world, the pride of life breaks through. And notice what it says in 18. At that time, his disciples came and said, "'Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' They actually had an argument along the way. Mark gives us a little bit more insight when he says this in verse 33. And then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? And they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Okay, There's some problem here, isn't there? These guys want to know who's the best. Who's number one? Who's going to be the most powerful guy in your kingdom? Now, obviously, this thing is starting to brew. Now, think about it. Peter, James, and John, hey, they went with Jesus up at the mountain, saw the transfiguration. The rest of them are like, hey, what are those guys? Who made them boss? Peter goes fishing, pulls the fish out, and has Jesus' tax and his tax. Hey, what about us? And so there, 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 there were starting to be this selfish ambition, this, this desire. And so they come to him, they say, hey, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Tell us who's going to be number one. And look what Jesus does. Look at verse two. And then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. He brought this child and he set this child. in the, We don't actually know if it's a boy. Uh, in, the, in the original language, it's all in, neut, in neutral language, neuter. He said he brought this child, and this child stood. It could have been a little girl. He, he put this, this child right here, and he said, and he, looked at, he's, he pointed out, and he said this. Look at verse 3. Assuredly, I say to you, that unless you be converted, the word means to take, make a 180, change your attitude, change completely from the direction that you're going in. Unless you're converted and become like little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What a masterful statement. What an amazing statement. you got this all these proud, arrogant men who are elbowing each other and wanting to be dominant over the other one, and he brings this little child, and this little, this little innocent child just stands there and just stands there looking up and, at Jesus and, and, and such, and Jesus said, unless you convert and be like that, you will not even get into the kingdom, let alone be a ruler in the kingdom of God. You need to be, look at verse four, therefore whoever humbles himself, as this little child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What an upside-down kingdom. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the most childlike and humble. What is he getting at? Well, what is it to be childlike? What are the childlike qualities that he wants us to have? Well, certainly he already identified one is humility. Humility. And that's, that's what you get. Not Not proud, not self-seeking. I want power. I want recognition. I want to be number one. I want to be the guy that everybody defers to. He says, no, the, you need to be the opposite. You need to be humble. Children are trusting. Children are, are willing to give faith. They, they'll, they'll take your word out. If you say something to them, they'll take your word, and they'll go along with you. Adults are. We become. Uh, we become very questioning, very disingenuous. We we play games and we we keep our cards close and we we tell people what we want them to hear. Children are simple, simple honesty. What you see is what you get. Pastor Todd, what happened to your hair? Where'd it go? <laughs> it's a good question. Simple, straightforward. Not, not, not worried. We're not like that. We're, 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 we're this. And when children want something, they ask for it. I had five ask for a mint today. They were listening to a sermon last week. They asked for it. Children ask. Children, are, they'll beg. Adults, no, 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 no I, don't need, I don't need no welfare. I don't, no, no, I don't need no handout. No, 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 no. And Jesus is saying that you can't get into his kingdom let alone be great in his kingdom. You can't even get into his kingdom unless you become like a little child. Unless you become poor and needy and on your knees and begging, you'll never come into the kingdom of God. If you're proud and you're arrogant and you're standing here and you're, I'll fix it, I'll, I'll earn my way into the kingdom by doing good and I'll do all the right things and God will have to let me into the kingdom and bring me into the kingdom because of all the good things I've done, all of the things I've given, all the things I've No, you won't get into the kingdom like that. You won't get into the kingdom at all. You must come humbly like a child. You must recognize your need. You must be honest with yourself. You must be simple in that sense. I need mercy. I need forgiveness. I need my past cleansed. I need a change of heart. I need God. I need help. I can't save myself. That's how you get into the kingdom. I need mercy. I need you to love me, even though I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your love. I've I've never done anything to, to deserve your love. I can't pay for your love. I will never be able to earn your love. I have forfeited any claim to your love. But please love me. Please forgive me. Please save me. Please have mercy upon me. Drained of all pride, honest about our sin, and simply taking God at his word, you say that all who believe in Jesus will have everlasting life. God, I trust you. I just simply, simply trust you. That's how you get into the kingdom of God. And that's greatness. Look at verse five. It's greatness. I'm sorry, verse four. Whoever humbles himself as this little child, he's answering their question, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then look at verse five. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. The word there means to welcome, to treat as an honored guest. If you receive this little child, he's standing there, little child, standing there. If you receive this little child in my name, you're receiving me. Notice what Jesus is doing, by the way. Jesus is being humble himself. He's being lowly. He's identifying himself, his purpose, his kingdom, his very person with this little child. He says, how you treat this little child is that's how you you treat me because I identify with this little child. Then Jesus goes on, and he starts talking about this kingdom and how this kingdom, how these, these children and, and, and being tempted. Now here, many commentators believe that Jesus is spreading it out a little bit and that what he's doing here, he's talking about all of his little ones, all of his, his, his followers, all who believe in him, whether they're young or old, but they're the, the, the ones who come with childlike faith. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, scandalize trump, to be tripped up, to trip and fall into sin, to tempt them into sin. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the depths of the sea. This is very, very graphic language, very graphic language. If you cause one of these little ones, you cause somebody who believes in me to sin, it would be better for you, now this is Jesus talking, it would be better for you if you took a millstone, and this is a big millstone, uh, some millstones can be little, but Jesus is describing, some of your Bibles will translate, large or great millstone, and actually, interesting, that word "larger, or great isn't large or great, it's the word donkey, a donkey millstone. What's a donkey millstone? A donkey millstone is a millstone that can only be turned by hitching up a donkey to it and having him walk around in circles and turn that massive millstone. Jesus is talking about a massive millstone. It would be better for you rather than to cause one of his little ones to fall and stumble, to take that millstone, wrap a rope around it, tie that rope tightly around your neck and cast that millstone into the sea and you get pulled down in and you go deep, deep down into the depths of that sea, unable to get up and you drown. It would be better for you to drown And to cause somebody to sin, cause somebody to stumble, cause somebody to be tripped up and fall. This is particularly powerful language. This is actually protective language. This is loving, protective language. Like if somebody were to threaten somebody that that you love, somebody were to threaten them, you might turn to that person and you might say, you take one step onto my yard and that's the last step that you're ever going to take. And you're going to wish that you were never born if you take that step. Now, if somebody were to say that, and I could actually perceive somebody saying that. I could perceive myself saying that. I had my kids or my grandkids back here, and somebody was going to threaten them. And I'm going to, and I'm going to, and that's love language. You are not going to touch them. And if you step onto my property, that's the last step you're ever going to take. And you need to understand that. And you're going to wish the day that you never took that step. That's what Jesus is saying here. You cause one of these little ones to sin. It would be better for you. Before you even think about doing that, go find a big millstone, tie it around your neck, and throw yourself in the sea and drown. Dear friends, that's what Jesus would say about people who run gentlemen clubs, like there's ones down the road here. That's what Jesus would say to somebody who produces and distributes pornography. That's what Jesus would say to somebody who tempts people to act in in ways that they shouldn't act and do what they shouldn't do. Never, dear friends, never be the cause of another person sinning. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then finally, he talks about how kingdom citizens should actually watch themselves. In the midst of all of this, notice what he says in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin... There again, that's the word. Causes you to stumble, to trip. Causes you to, to have a downfall and such. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Again, this is very, very graphic language. Cut it off. You, you know how hard it would be to cut your hand off? Now, seriously. Have you, ever, you, you probably struggled taking a splinter out in your life at time. You know what I'm saying? Could you imagine what it would be like to cut your hand off? To cut your foot off. Now, of course, he's not telling us to do this. This is figurative language, but it's powerful language. He is saying, listen, cut your hand off, cut your foot off, and throw it from you. Look at that. So you cut your hand off, then you got to pick it up with the other hand, and you got to throw it from you, cast it from you. Get that hand or foot that has caused you to sin as far from you can. Why? Notice what he says. Look at verse 8. It is better for you to enter into life, and actually the original language says the life, and here this is kingdom language, the kingdom of God, heaven, lame or maimed, one hand or one footed, Rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that going to hell, being cast into hell, missing the kingdom of God, going to hell because something in your life caused you to sin, it's better to cut that thing off, get it away from you, and go through life handicapped and make it to heaven because the alternative is so absolutely horrible. Look at the language. Everlasting fire. Be one thing to be thrown into a fire and burn up in a few minutes. Be another thing to be thrown in a fire and never burn up, and that fire never stop. This is Jesus talking. This is hell he's referring to. It's real. Look at verse nine. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, gouge it out of its socket, and cast it from you. For it is better for you to enter into the life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into, and here he identifies it, hellfire, hellfire. Jesus is saying this. Dear friends, what is going on around us is deadly serious. There is the kingdom of the world. John says, love not the world or the things of the world. The person who loves the world, the love of God is not in him. The world, he says, this world, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He said, this world is coming to be destroyed. God is going to destroy it. Jesus is saying that there is some really powerful stuff that's going on here. And Jesus is saying, you better take this deadly serious. And Jesus is saying that heaven and hell are in the balance here. And Jesus is saying this, don't cause other people to sin. Stop yourself from doing that. If you have to tie a millstone around your neck, throw it you stop and don't yourself continue to sin. Don't yourself go in and cut off anything in your life that is moving you in that direction. That is what Jesus is saying. It's graphic language for a reason. Gouging out eyes and cutting off hands is graphic language for me. Jesus didn't want his followers to start. You can gouge, you, 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 your eyes go to where they shouldn't go. So you can pluck them both out. You pluck them both out. You're still not out of the, out of the woods, dear friend, because you're still gonna have all those images in your head. That was the problem with monasticism. They thought if they could go into a monastery then all of the temptations of the world would be gone. They found it, lo and behold, they brought it all in because they took the flesh in, they took their mind in and everything. No, Jesus is using this graphic language in order to tell us how to organize and, and run our lives as kingdom members in a wicked and adulterous world and generation. We're living as God's people in Babylon like Daniel did. No, what Jesus is saying is, If cable TV is causing you to sin, cancel the cable. Unfriend people if you have to from your social media. Delete apps if need be to live a holy life. Smash your computer. Smash your smartphone if need be. It's better to go through life without a smartphone than to go to hell forever. Stop old friendships. If you have old friendships and those friends are dragging you down, end those friendships. Stay away from the old hangouts. If every time you get back to the old hangout, all of a sudden the language starts getting gross again, all of a sudden you overdrink, all of a sudden you're smoking pot again, all of a sudden, if that happens to you, stop going there. Cut it out of your life. Cut off people from your life if you have to. If you're in a workplace and there's that seductive, needy, lonely secretary who's actually very good-looking and very needy, and in order for her to have her emotional tank filled and her sense of of, of attention and her sense of masculine uh, caring, she'd be more than happy to sleep with you in order to get her emotional needs met. And she becomes a a terrible, terrible temptation. Get her out of your life. Or that oversexed man, flirtatious guy at work who's flirting with you, cheating on his wife by flirting with you. What, are you going to leave your husband? It's amazing to me how many people I've known in my lifetime, women who have left their husbands for guys who were flirting with them. And And I always say to them, you know, how dumb is that? I said, number one, this guy had no respect whatsoever for the fact that you were married. And so what are you going to do? Are you Are going to divorce your husband? Marry this guy? Do you think he's going to have any respect for your marriage with him? You see, dear friends, what does the Bible say? Cut it out. Anything that causes you to stumble, to not get into the kingdom, cut it out of your life. Get to heaven. Get there. Do whatever it takes. Get there. I told you before, one time I was, out, I was preaching at a conference, actually, and I was preaching, and I went exercising on bike riding. I'm out there bike riding. Of course, I've been away from my wife. I'm out there bike riding. I'm on the other side of the, war, of the country. I'm bike riding. I'm on this trail, and all of a sudden, this very beautiful woman came into the trail like this, and she's riding in front of me. And bike riding women wear really, really tight clothes. And my eyes uh, and, uh, uh, caught her, my attention got her, and 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 I was on the same trail with her. I was riding behind her and I was like, dude, I just literally went the side trail. I said, no way, man. I'm getting to heaven. I'm getting to heaven. I'm cutting this out of my life. And dear friends, that's what Jesus is telling us to do. Get it out of our lives. Get to the kingdom. Now, let me give one more line of application to this. There's many lines of application, and I'm sure that in your life right now, you can think of many lines of application of how you should live this out in your life. But I want to come back to chapter 18, verse 1, finally, in concluding and saying this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God? I want to focus on one sin in closing. And I, want, and, and, and I want to do this for a reason. And it is the sin of selfish ambition. It is the sin that I need to be first. It is the sin of, hey, what about me? Look at me. Listen to me. And I want to be very, very specific here. I want to talk about this sin as it shows itself in the life of the church. Okay? Now, let me pause here. Let me pause here. I am not saying this because I believe that this is a dominant sin in our church. If I did believe that this was a dominant sin in our church, I would preach this ten times more vehemently than I'm about to. But I don't. I don't. In fact, I praise God and I thank God for this church that this is not a dominant sin in our church amongst our leadership, in our congregational meetings, how we treat with one another in our congregation. This is not a dominant sin in our church. I am not talking about our church. I commend our church. So when I make specific application, I'm not doing this because I'm trying to speak to sins that is going on in our church. I'm trying to do this so that this does not surface in our church, so that we don't, and I'm saying this after four decades plus of pastoral work and knowing other churches and even being called into counsel with other churches, this stuff is devastating for churches. And so I just want to... Give us a warning so that we will not let this happen. In Philippians chapter two and verse three, Paul says this, let nothing, let nothing, and I'm telling you, I'm emphasizing that word because I have had to say that to myself millions of times over the last 40 years. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. You see, dear friends, this is how we are supposed to act in Christ's church. Jesus Christ, the crucified one, we are in his church. This is how we're to act. And I want to warn us, dear friends, don't ever do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do do nothing out of that. But do it out of lowliness of mind and heart. Pastors, elders... You've seen this in the past. I'm not talking to pastors. I'm talking to all of you. You've seen this in the past in pastors and elders. Many of you maybe have come from churches where it's like this, where the pastor, or the elders, they have to be in control. They have to be up front. They have to be the ones who are calling the shots. They have demand that everything is done their way. They demand that they be called by titles so that you would recognize that they stand above you. Oh, well, no, no, I'm not Mr. Johnson. I'm Pastor Johnson. Please remember that. They lorded over people. That's absolutely contrary to Scripture. In fact, in Peter, 1 Peter 5, when Peter is talking to his fellow elders, he says to his fellow elders, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. There is no place for that in Christ's church. No place for that. We're all to be lowly and humble and to consider others better than ourselves. Church officers who politic and put pressure on people and push their opinions and are not afraid to offend people so that they can get what they want done in the church the way it's their way. They only only, uh, gravitate toward others who are movers and shakers and power people within the church. They could care less about the poor. They could care less about widows. They could care less about children. Children, the greatest in the church. They could care less about the powerless. Because they're filled with selfish ambition and pride. And dear friends, this, this ugly stinking stench happens in churches. And you read about churches breaking up because of this. Musicians, musicians, all they want is to focus upon themselves, how good they are, how well they sing, how good they play. It's all about them. And they just use the congregation to literally worship at the altar of their own selves. I've been at conferences. I've been at conferences where there has been wonderful, amazing preaching and teaching going on, and many of the musicians didn't sit through one of the preaching sessions. It was just all about their entertainment and all about what they were going to do and they had no hunger, or genuine concern for the word of God. It was so disillusioning the first time I was ever in a situation like that. They just want to display themselves. Or church members who are opinionated, love the sound of their own voice. Have to be heard all the time. Have to have their say. Love it when churches gather together so that they can get their attention. There's different selfish ambition and pride. These things happen within churches. And Paul tells us, let nothing be done through this. And this is why I find this so thoroughly disgusting when I see it. And when I get, I get phone calls from pastors and I get phone calls from congregations and and I get these phone calls and all of a sudden I see this sin and this is what's, I get disgusted and angry and I'll tell you why. Why this is so wrong. Because look at the founder of our church, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise up. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the founder of this church, he humbled himself. He left all of his glory in heaven. He made himself as nothing. He came down to earth, and he took on a human body. He became a little child at one point in his life. He took on a human body. And then he walked in this earth, and he worked in the hot dust of Nazareth, up until he was 30 years old, with tools in his hand, unheard of, building, constructing the one who constructed the universe and the worlds and all things were made through him. He's building and he's constructing and he's helping and he's quietly, humbly serving, making no name for himself to the point that Nazareth rejects him and says, who does he think he is? He's Joseph's son. He's the carpenter. He's the builder. He just was quietly serving his Lord. He was quietly serving his family. He was quietly loving his name. Neighbor. And then he begins to teach and then to preach and then to do the wonderful miracles that made them say, you're the son of God. And then he's arrested. How humiliating. What would it be like if you got arrested this week? Maybe it was a false arrest. But there you are, handcuffs, the police things going wrong, and your neighbors are driving by the car and there you are in handcuffs getting put in the back seat of the car. Jesus was humiliated by arrest. He could have stopped the whole thing, he said. He was humiliated. He was then tortured, beaten, made fun of. Crown of thorns shoved on his head. Whipped to the point that almost dead. And then laid down upon a cross and nails were nailed through his hand piercing the skin, busting through the tendons and ligaments, busting out the other end and nailed into thing, nailed on the other hand. Feet gathered together, nailed together, and then pulled up by those nails onto the cross. Stripped completely naked. And while that is going on, and he's pulling against those nails upon his hand, pushing against those nails upon his feet in order to even catch a breath, people are laughing at him, making fun of him, jeering at him. Dear friends, this is the one who gave his life for us. This is the head of the church. It is his church. It is not my church, it is not the elders' church. It is not the deacon's church. It is not the congregation's church. It is not the the, the old members who have been here all life. It is not the new members. This is Christ, the humble, lowly one who gave his life. He, it is his church. We follow him. And if we follow him, then we should be simple, humble, lowly servants, servants of God, servants of each other. He washed his disciples' feet. Dear friends, this is what we should be. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit. And such are the greatest in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus... We owe everything to you. If you would not have left heaven, we would have perished. If you would not have become a little fetus and given up all of your glory, we would have perished. If you would not have lived a sinless life, we would have perished. If you would not have died upon the cross, we would have perished. But you gave yourself, you humbled yourself, You made yourself nothing. You became the most bloodied and bruised criminal-looking person, hung with criminals, the very Son of God, so that we could have everlasting life. Your greatness was your servanthood, even though you were inherently great in your very being. Your greatness was your meekness. Your greatness was your love. Oh, dear Lord, we pray, help us. Help us not to be bamboozled by the the world and how they have so perverted greatness. Help us, we pray. Help us to be like children, humble, teachable, trusting. Help us, we pray. May you be glorified as you transform us and make us like you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.